Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, May 18, 2014, and my name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID for Friday, May 16th, is 6360. That's 6360. This morning, A Vision for You presents Turning Over Our Will and Our Lives, excerpts from Step 3, and how it works. Each and everything we do in our lives is based on a decision. Every action we take is preceded by a decision. Since our lives are action, then decision-making is one of the most important principles for successful living. In this 12-step process, the first two steps have given us the information with which to make this decision. We have seen our alternatives, and we have a choice. We can choose to begin to live our lives on a spiritual basis or be doomed to a compulsive overeater's death. Step one and step two have prepared us. We are now ready for a decision. There is no need to procrastinate. Our window of opportunity is open. Here to speak with us this morning on Step 3 and excerpts from How It Works is Amy G. Amy is a recovered compulsive overeater dedicated to our 12-step spiritual path of recovery. She is devoted to intensively working with compulsive overeaters, carrying the message that indeed there is a solution. Welcome to the line, Amy G. Amy, press star one to unmute, please. Good morning. Can you hear me now? Yes, indeed. Great, Leah. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone and everyone on the line. My name is Amy. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity and the privilege to carry the message today. I'm so grateful to this program and all that it has done for me. And before I delve into these th- this topic today of uh, excerpts from, you know, turning it over and excerpts from how it works in step three, I'd like to qualify. Just to let you know, I'm just another bozo on the bus. I am here. I am a compulsive overeater, and together we can do what we can never do alone. Just to give you some background about how I look and um, what I went through, what it was like, I've run the full gambit of this disease. Um, if you think of a street bum alcoholic, that's that's what I was, a critical level compulsive overeater. My top weight was 170, but I stopped getting on the scale after that. I'm pretty sure I put on another 20. My That's as my obesity goes. And then my lowest weight, I also dealt with bulimia and anorexia. At my lowest weight, I was 103. I'm 5'8", a little shy of 5'8", so that's probably about 35 pounds less than a normal weight in person would be. I'm also recovered bulimic, and at my worst bulimic stages, I was puking 10, 11, 12 times a day, binging around the clock. I also used compulsive exercise to try to deal with this disease. I would exercise hours upon hours a day. I've had three knee surgeries as a result of it. By the grace of God um, and this program, 
I walked into my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting in 82, 1982, became recovered in December of 1987, and have been recovered ever since. I'm extremely, extremely grateful for what this program has done. It has saved my life. I don't doubt that for a minute. As I said, I walked into my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting in Northfield, Minnesota, St. Olaf College, my freshman year. I was 22 years old. Shout out to my Minnesotans out there. And as they say in the program, I did not come into these rooms on a high note. They talk about the freshman 20. Well, try for me the freshman 60, the freshman 70. The height of my binging, I was puking 10, 11, 12 times a day. I was binging around the clock. I was suicidal. I was also an alcoholic and a drug addict. I was using drugs like cocaine and amphetamines to maintain my weight or try to. And when I couldn't deal with anything anymore, I blotted it all out with more drugs and more alcohol. I would look at myself in the mirror. I would punch the mirror and, and break it. I would punch bed frames and cracking the knuckles in my hands because I hated myself. My family's motto all my life had been growing up was all it takes is a little willpower. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do anything you put your mind to. And yet I could not stay on a diet. I couldn't control my eating. I didn't understand. See, I didn't know then that I was dealing with a disease. I bought the myth that the world sells you that just meet the magic numbers on the scale. You can do anything. You just need the right diet that be thin and all would be well. I didn't understand I was dealing with what this disease is, which is a physical allergy and a mental obsession. When we look to our text in the big book, and I believe this to be our text that we study to understand this disease, to learn how to recover, it talks about an allergy. And what that is is that's an, it's when I put something into my body, I have an abnormal reaction and I can't stop eating it. And I understood that when I put sugar into my system that I couldn't stop eating. I would look around and I'd see why is it that one person could eat one cookie, but I had to have the whole bag of cookies. Why is it that I couldn't stop with just one? It says here in the big book, on the doctor's opinion, on XVIII, all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking or for us eating without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be a manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief, relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. I didn't know that I was dealing with an allergy, but even more so is the second aspect of this disease, which is the mental obsession. You see, if I'm a normal person and I know I'm allergic to strawberries and they make me sick when I eat them, then I don't eat them because I know that they make me sick. Make me sick. But why is it when I know that I eat one cookie that I'm going to have to have three dozen of them that I keep going back to that, knowing what it does to me, the weight gain, the mental torture, the suicidal feelings, the feelings of self-hatred? Why is it that I couldn't stay on the diet? Why is it that I had to keep coming back? where I'd have those blackout binges that I used to say, where I'd be five bites into a binge, standing in front of the refrigerator going, how the hell did I get there? With all my resolve, I would still be into the food. I would then trigger the allergy, and I was off to the races, and I could not stop. I, I didn't know this then, but this was what I was dealing with, and all I was trying to fix it with was the symptom, 
with food, with diets, with amphetamines, with cocaine, with, with whatever I could to try to find a perfect diet, a perfect fix. To say I was spiritually ill, they call this a spiritual malady. To say I was spiritually ill was an understatement. I was selfish, self-centered. I couldn't handle my emotions. I didn't know how to grow up. I was the epitome of self-will run riot. But I didn't know any other way. I didn't know that of my own capability, I was already too far gone. There was no way I was going to fix this. Let me read an excerpt from step one in 12 and 12, the AA 12 and 12. Again, we swap out food for alcohol, and we have the description of me, a compulsive overeater. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It is truly awful to admit that food in hand, we have warped our minds into such such obsession for destructive eating that only an act of providence can remove it from us. And, of course, this, this was written many, many years ago, but this idea of providence is act of God or a higher power, something outside of myself. Because I don't know about you all, but in my act of compulsive overeating, when you say obsessed, I was obsessed. I thought about food, weights, and scales 24 hours a day. That's all I thought about. Everything was a way to get myself back to the food. I always was looking at the scales. My life was ruled by the numbers on a scale, whether I was on a diet, off a diet, or beginning a diet. I'd get on the scale multiple times a day. It would decide for me how my day would go and how I would feel about myself. And, of course, when things didn't go well, well, what was my reward? The insanity of it all was my reward was to then eat more. It talks about in the big book, XBI, about this mental obsession. It says here, men and women drink or eat essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol and food for us, and my binge foods. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, and I knew that, they couldn't after a time differentiate the two from the false. To them, their compulsive overeating life seemed the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontent until they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few bites or drinks, which they see others taking with impunity. Well, to say I was restless, irritable, and discontent a lot is an understatement. That was how I lived my life. Everything was a reaction. I was impulsive. I was compulsive. And every answer to every life circumstance for me was to eat. I could not differentiate the true from the false anymore. And it says here the three Ds of this disease are denial, delusion, and defiance. And that is what I had in great measure. And that when we are desperate, dying, and doomed, we finally come to this program and admit that we're powerless. I'm a bit of a slogan junkie, so you'll probably be hearing a lot of various slogans that I've heard in rooms and in the OA rooms, and I will be passing them on to you. But like I said, at 22, dying of this disease, binging and puking around the clock, I saw a sign in the cafeteria for an Overeaters Anonymous meeting. I thought, hey, and maybe this is another diet. Maybe it is something that will fix me and that will help me. Be thin, because again, I thought sin was well. That was where my warped thinking was. Some of you all have heard my story before. I walked into that first meeting. People started talking about food and what they did with food, like putting it in the trash can, swearing it off, even putting laundry detergent over it, and then 
few hours later, a day later, a week later, whatever, finding themselves back in the trash digging out the food. I thought for sure I was the only one that did that kind of thing. You know, this is a disease of isolation that says you want to get, it wants to get up in your head, isolate you, and kill you. I was so isolated in the sense that I thought that I was the only one that did these crazy things with food. I felt all of a sudden like, wow, could this be something for me? And then they started talking about God. They started talking about step two, and you know, and all, and at that point, I was firmly, firmly, firmly agnostic. I mean, let's just go through the steps. They started talking about we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Okay, I started to see that in the meeting. I thought, wow, that, yeah, uh-huh. And then two, step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Oh, I don't know. I'm starting to come to a screeching halt here. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood them. Up I stood from that meeting and I walked out the door. As I said, firmly agnostic. God didn't give me what I wanted. He was my universal Santa Claus. If I didn't get what I wanted, then to hell with you. There was no way on earth I was going to turn to God for anything. And I walked out of the meeting going, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know. I guess I'm on my own because I don't know. And what's so beautiful about this program and you all in these rooms it says, you know, we'll love you until you can love yourself. Someone walked out of the meeting. They followed me out of the meeting. And they didn't talk to me about God. They, they handed me a pamphlet that says, are you a compulsive overreader? And she just said to me, if you truly are powerless, if you think you might be a compulsive overreader, read these questions. Keep coming back. Don't let the God thing get in the way. What she did is she helped bring it back to what this disease is about to convince me that... I had this disease and that I was powerless. Let me read you these 15 questions that changed my life. Do you eat when you're not, uh, the first one, do you eat when you're not hungry or eat when your body needs, or not eat, or eat beyond when your body needs nourishment? Two, do you go on eating binges for no apparent reason, sometimes eating until you're stuffed or even feel sick? Three, do you have feelings of guilt, shame, or embarrassment about your weight or the way you eat? Four, do you eat sensibly in front of others and then make up for it when you're alone? Five, is your eating affecting your health or the way you live your life? Six, when your emotions are intense, whether positive or negative, do you find yourself reaching for food? Seven, do your eating behaviors make you or others unhappy? Eight, have you ever used laxatives, vomiting, diuretics, excessive exercise, diet pills, shots, or medical interventions, including surgery, to try to control your weight. Nine, do you fast or severely restrict your food intake to control your weight? Ten, do you fantasize about how much better life would be if you were a different size or weight? Eleven, do you need to chew or have something in your mouth all the time, food, gum, mints, candies, or beverages? Twelve, Have you ever eaten food that is burned, frozen, spoiled from containers in the grocery store or out of the garbage? Thirteen, are there certain foods that you can't stop eating after having the first bite? Fourteen, have you lost weight with diet or had periods of control only to be followed by bouts of uncontrolled eating and or weight gain? Fifteen, do you spend too much time thinking about food, arguing with yourself whether or what to eat, planning the next diet exercise, 
or counting calories. I read these 15 questions. I mean, I already told you I was going into the garbage. I answered yes to every single one. It was like a splash of cold water on my face. This was who I am, was a compulsive overeater. I didn't know about the God thing, but I did know that this program had something that defined me. And up until that point, I had no idea. I thought I just needed another diet. I was dealing with the the symptoms of this disease, the food and the weight and the scales, having no idea about what the actual disease was about. And when I read these 15 questions, I realized that this is where I wanted to be. They say, welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. Welcome home. This is what I was doing. It says, have you ever used laxatives or vomiting or diuretics? I've used them all. Had I ever eaten food that was burned or frozen? Yes, I had done that. Are there certain foods I can't stop eating after I eat? I knew that. There was no such thing as one piece of pizza for me, one piece of licorice. Had I had periods of weight of weight loss only to be, or periods of control only to be followed by bouts of uncontrolled eating and weight loss? I had come to my freshman year in college. Let me just give you an example. I had starved and used amphetamines the entire summer. I had restricted all summer long. I had dropped 35, 40 pounds. By the beginning of the second semester of my freshman year of college, I had put on 45 pounds. And this is with puking all the time. Flash to folks out there, when you're a bulimic and you're binging the way I was binging, you don't puke up all those calories. You're still consuming massive amounts of calories because that's what it did for me. When I was bulimic, I thought it was a way to lose weight. But this disease is so cunning and powerful that it became a way to just continue my binges instead. It used to be where I would just eat and, and eat and eat until I couldn't eat anymore, and then I would pass out on the couch. But with the bulimia, I could stick my finger down my throat, puke it up, and then start emptying my stomach, and then start eating some more. And all those calories did not come up. And I gained massive amounts of weight in a very short period of time. And when I said I was suicidal, that is what was going on. I was absolutely bereft of any idea of what to do. And I was so warped in my thinking, I still thought it was just about a diet. And when I came to Overeaters Anonymous and I read these 15 questions, I thought, all right, I'm going to try this. I don't know what it's all about. They're certainly describing things that I do with food. So I'm going to keep coming back. And I kept coming back to meetings. And I'd like to say it was all peaches and roses and all of that, but it wasn't because I struggled constantly with step three. I was convinced and I was willing to admit powerlessness. I was even willing to admit that you all had something, that you all were greater than me, that the program was greater than me. But when it came to this idea of personal powerlessness, I really struggled with that. When it said that my life became unmanageable, you know, we admitted we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. I was willing to admit that I was powerless over food, but that my life was unmanageable. I could not grasp that how the rest of my life, how is it that I needed to turn my will and my life over? beyond the food. And what's so scary about this disease is that I, you know, here I am struggling with thinking about was my life truly unmanageable? Let me give you another example of what my life was as a freshman year in college. We had in my, I had a roommate and we called, we called that an H, she had an HTH, which is called a hometown honey. 
and she would go home every weekend to go visit her honey, her boyfriend. And what I would do when she was gone is I would take the money that my parents sent me um, while I was in college for books and odds and ends, and I would take that money and I would make a fake party list with food on it and I would go to the grocery store pretending to be buying all this food for a party and literally have conversations with the grocery store clerk about, oh, do you think I should get the chocolate-covered macadamia nuts or do you think the chocolate-covered pretzels would be a better appetizer? I mean, this was the length to which I went for my binge food. I would get these bags of groceries I would take them to my dorm room, I would lock the door, and I would binge the entire weekend. I would definitely not be doing any studying. As a matter of fact, I was failing in all of my, in all of my classes. And because I was in a dorm room and I was a bulimic, they don't have one-stalled bathrooms. And those bulimics uh, that are on the line will know what I'm talking about. There was no way to puke quietly. So what I did instead is I took a trash can, I put a garbage bag in it, and I would eat and puke in that trash can, close the bag, stick it in the closet, keep watching TV, reading Harlequin romances, eating and puking until that bag was full. And I don't mean to gross people out, but this is the length to what I went to for my disease. This was the length I was willing to go to. In the middle of the night, 2 o'clock in the morning, I would take that bag of vomit and I would take it outside and I put it in one of those huge garbage um, receptacles that the trucks come and lift and stick it up and, you know, put it in the back of the bed of the truck. And I'll never forget, I took that bag one night, one weekend, and I put it at 3 o'clock in the morning in one of those big receptacles and the next morning when the trash came, somehow the bag fell out and the bag opened and puke went all over, all over the um, driveway. And, of course, this called the big, caused a huge brouhaha around the college going, you know, who was the bulimic, you know, and what was going on. And they had counselors going, knocking door to door in dorm rooms, you know, <laughs> saying, are you the bulimic? You know, it's just you. Of course, this was not something I was going to fess up. But the reality of when someone came and knocked on the door and said, you know, we, we you know, are you this person? You know, do you need help? What's going on? The shame, self-hate. See, again, I thought this was still about willpower. Why is it I couldn't control what it was I was eating? Why is it I couldn't, I couldn't stay on a diet? And then unwilling to suffer the consequences of the binge by then puking and continuing to binge. This was my compulsive overeating, and this was my bottom. But as I came into Overeaters Anonymous, I was there for four and a half years struggling with this concept of step three and turning my, my will and my, my life over. I was willing to admit powerlessness, but I was very unwilling to work these steps and to turn it over. I wanted to just use the tools of the program, the abstinence and, you know, going to a nutritionist and these things. And, of course, they're all very, very important. But the essence of this program is the 12 steps the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery that we talk about on the Vision for You meetings every day. This was what I was not willing to fess up to. But as they say, uh, Sarah Lee and John Bar- Barleycorn have become our best, our best advocates because I was so hurting and I was so unmanageable with my life even if I wasn't willing to admit it and I couldn't stop eating and I couldn't stop fluctuating up, up and down the scale that I finally knew that I needed to have help and I was willing to finally work this program. 
I was had to be convinced that I had the problem, and then I had to be convinced that I was the problem. You know, we talk about this mental this mental obsession, and if the mental obsession is my mind, if my problem is my mind, how can I fix my mind with a mind? My sick mind can't heal my sick mind. If my mind is the problem, I can't fix the problem with the problem. And this is why I needed a higher power. I needed something greater than me. And my first sponsor, I love her so much. She hung with me. And she kept saying to me, Amy, Amy, if your way is working so well, why are you here? I don't care if you think your higher power is Jesus, Buddha, or the universal vibes of a tree. As long as you aren't it. If you can turn that over to that, if you can turn over to that, then you can work this program. And that is what I started to do. And this is what brings me to um, how it works and to step three. Again, let me read you step three. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And with how it works, I'm going to read this. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave and emotional mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what it, what it used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these steps we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol, and for us, food, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it's too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. And here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program recovery. And then it goes on to list the 12 steps. Now, if any of you all have been to Overeaters Anonymous meetings, we know that these excerpts from How It Works are one of the most common readings in Overeaters Anonymous meetings, as well as the promises. And why wouldn't it be? Because we all want to know what to do and what we're going to get as a result of it, and this this chapter, just you know, I I love researching the history of um, AA, and what's fascinating about how important this chapter was to the writers and the authors of this is that they were editing it up to the few months before 1939. It was re- before it was published. It was rewritten 30 times. I mean, this is an incredibly important chapter because it tells us how this program works. It's the name of the chapter, how it works. But the reason why today I wanted to couple it with step three is because until we've come to step three and we've made that decision to turn our will and our lives over, how it works and how it applies in our lives, I can tell you for me, it's not going to work. 
And I spent four and a half years trying to work this program without ever actually making the decision to turn my will and life over. And I spent four and a half years of compulsive overeating, torturous hell, the Overeaters Anonymous, wondering why I couldn't get this program because I hadn't taken step three. I had not made that decision. Uh, I had not made it complete abandon. And that's why I wanted to focus on what it was. And, and you know, I feel like in, in OA sometimes as sponsors, we need to be careful that we don't do a disservice. If we have someone that is struggling like me in, uh, in OA and we keep bringing them back to what to do differently, when I actually think we need to go back, in my humble opinion, to what the problem is, do I truly see myself as a compulsive overreader and that without some help, something greater outside of myself, that my best thinking will bring me back to the food? Do I understand that I need a spiritual awakening, I need a personality change, and without working these 12 steps that it's not going to happen? And this is why we come to step three and we have to admit this powerlessness and be willing to turn our will and our lives over it says here on page 58, if you, our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now, if you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length, then you are ready to take certain steps. But how can I take those steps if I am not willing and if I have not made the decision to do them? There is a decision to be made. And we says here we stood at the turning point and we and it would complete abandon. You know, abandon, I looked up the definition, and, you know, abandon is not just like leaving. When you think of like an abandoned house, it means, you know, no one's coming back. You know, it's toast. It's done. You know, it is ready for the scrap heap. That's why they use the word abandon. They're very specific and brilliant in how they use the words. It's with complete and absolute abandon that we stand at the turning point, and we have to make this decision. And we have to do it with complete abandon, which means no going back, folks, no going back. Leah mentioned it in the introduction this morning. It's on page 25 of the chapter, There is a Solution. It says here, if you're seriously alcoholic as we were, or compulsive overeater as I was, we were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and we had passed into the region from which there was no return from human aid, and we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best as we could, and the other was to accept spiritual help, which is the 12 steps. This we did because we honestly wanted to and we were willing to make the effort. Well, I can tell you, after four and a half years of slipping and sliding and hell of compulsive overeating in Overeaters Anonymous, I was then willing to make that decision. I was willing to surrender to, the, to my compulsive overeating, my powerlessness. I was willing to believe, and I was willing to choose action. And to me, that boils down to what the three steps are about, the first three steps. Step one is I choose or decide to surrender. Now, I'm using the word I here for a reason. I know step one is written as we admitted. And that's very true. Together we can do what we could never do alone. I could never beat this disease by myself and my own. But at some point, we do have to make a choice. And only I can make that choice. And that choice is to choose to surrender, to admit my powerlessness, to give up the fight of trying to do this on my own. So I'm going to use the word I here. 
I, in step one, choose or decide, you can say choose or decide, you pick the word that works best for you, I choose to surrender. I choose or decide to believe. Step three, I choose and decide to turn my will and my life over and to act, to become willing to act. It is a decision that says I'm going to step forward immediately and take action. And this is such an important step because basically my decisions, my choices, my willingness to act are all going to be based on these decisions, every decision based on that. And what is the action that I'm going to take? Well, it describes it in how it works. It's going to be the 12 steps and that I'm going to work these 12 steps like my life depends upon it so that I can have this personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, to become recovered. It talks about a psychic change. They say personality change, psychic change, spiritual awakening. You know, I heard in a meeting once, which was great, it said, you know, no one ever recovered as a result of an intellectual awakening to become recovered. And I just love that because I had a lot of knowledge those years I spent in Overeaters Anonymous. And I knew a lot by then about the disease. And I knew all I knew. And I thought that based on that knowledge alone, I could work this program. But all I wound up with without that decision to turn my will and my life over to God as I understood him, that I was only going to have a belly full, of, a head full of knowledge and a belly full of food. Another one of my slogans that I've heard that I love. So this we get to step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand them. At this point, I was absolutely willing. I got a sponsor. I said, hey, tell me how to do it. What is it that I need to do? And this was an incredible revelation. My sponsor sent me to step three. And at the very end of step three, on page 40, on the second paragraph, it says here, it's just such a powerful couple of paragraphs, it says, All by himself and in the light of his own circumstances, he needs to develop the quality of willingness. When he acquires willingness, he is the only one who can make the decision to exert himself. Trying to do this is an act of his own will. All of the 12 steps require sustained and personal exertion to conform to the principles and so we trust to God's will. It is when we try to make our will conform with God that we begin to use it rightly. To all of us, this was a most wonderful revelation. Our whole trouble had been the misuse of willpower. We had tried to bombard it with our problems, with, bombard our problems with it, instead of attempting to bring it into agreement with God's intention, God's intention for us. To me, this was an incredible revelation, because after I had taken step three and I said, "Okay, I'm turning it over as if I know nothing." You, you, recovered, who have been before, show me how to do it. Take me through these steps. I was able to then say, based guidance by my sponsor, here's what you do. These are the action steps you need to take. So this is what I did. I got a sponsor, like I said. I went to meetings. I got a home group. And with us, with Vision for You, what an incredible resource. The special edition meetings, Monday through Friday, if you can't get on at 7 a.m., Get on and listen recorded. It is an incredible resource. We started reading the big book with the sponsor, and we started working on the steps. We started learning about this program. Another great slogan, I had to learn how to talk program to myself and listening to my disease. I had to get humble. And, you know, they talk about step zero, which is put the food down. 
None of this happens without abstinence first. You can't do anything without the abstinence. Trying to work this program while you're binging is like saying you're a little bit pregnant. You know, the reality of step zero, yes, it is so much more beyond abstinence. We will never find peace of mind without the true sobriety that comes through the personal transformation of these 12 steps. But without step zero putting the food down, I got nothing. I tried it that way, and it did not work me. I can't work, I can't eat my way through the 12 steps. It's not going to bring me to abstinence. Abstinence had to come first. And for me, that was working with my sponsor and a nutritionist to put boundaries around my food plan. I'm not going to talk a lot about abstinence here. You can go to the special edition meeting and listen to Ruth. But the reality of putting boundaries around my food plan for me was that I had to know what my binge foods were, And obviously take those out, the big book says, entire abstinence from those things that trigger my allergy. And then for me, I also had to have boundaries because of my bulimia around the volumes because I could binge on volume. I could binge on high-fat foods. I had to find, for me, a balanced food plan I could follow that I knew when my meal started, what was in my meal that wasn't going to trigger me, when my meal stopped. I needed to know that I would be eating three meals a day, what was in them, where my snack were, where my snacks were, that type of scenario. And we worked together. And it took some footwork. It took some energy. But I needed to have the line in the sand. What was my abstinence and what was not my abstinence? Where was the line in the sand? It's close to putting the plug in the jug for the alcoholic. This was what I had to define first with my sponsor. And once that was down, everything else The the steps were then, the action steps are what I then took and I moved beyond. And let me talk a little bit about humility. I had to continue to stay humble. That's what turning it over is about. It's the essence of step three, is being humble, that we had to get humble. And when the food called to me, trust me, the food did call. I wasn't struck abstinent. I wasn't struck spiritually recovered. Food did call, but when it called, I got on my knees and I prayed, again, an essence, the essence of step three of turning it over. And I would say, God, I am entirely convinced that of my own, I will eat. I, need, I cannot do this on my own. Please help me take the necessary steps to recover. It's my version of the third step prayer. There's also one here in how it works um, on page 63. You can read that. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thy wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and the way of life. May I do thy will always. I mean, you, I prayed. I asked for my higher power. And then I turned around and I gave service. Service is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And as a newcomer, it's kind of hard to think, well, you know, what is it that I can do as service? But it talks about in uh, working with others, in the chapter Working Others, that nothing ensures immunity from compulsive overeating than working with another compulsive overeater. Even the newest of newcomers finds undreamed of rewards when we carry the message. And that's what we do. And we may be new, but that doesn't mean I can't pick up the phone and I can't call a newcomer that came to the meeting after me. And if I can't, and again, on a pitch for the, uh, a revival of the big book in OA meetings, you know, if you're in an OA meeting 
and you're not hearing them talking about the 12 steps, bring your big book to the meeting. Maybe you're not recovered yet. Maybe you're working through the steps with your sponsor. But that doesn't mean that we can't take our big books to the meeting, open up the chapter that you've heard about that we were reading in the vision for you, and read that chapter when it comes time for you to share at the meeting. Carry the message that's in the big book. That's the only message that we have to recover, that we have to recover as compulsive readers, in my humble opinion. And that's what we bring. We bring that message to the meetings. And that's how we recover. We do service. If you read Bill's story, I mean, they didn't have the 12 They didn't have the 12 steps. Bill didn't have the 12 steps when he first started. He had a spiritual awakening, and he knew that he was powerless. And what was the one thing he knew that could help him? was to surrender to God and go out there and try to find another suffering alcoholic that he could share it with. And that's how the meeting, that's how the program grew. Now, I know that step three, when we talk about will and life, we turn our will and our lives over. Sometimes that can be somewhat daunting. I don't know about you all, but I'm like talking to my sponsor going, will, life, you know, what, what exactly... What exactly does that mean? What do you mean by you turn my will and my life over? How, how exactly does that work? And I looked through and did some research, and I did some other definitions, and I think it's fantastic to do define, going to the dictionary and just looking at definitions of words that are in the big book. It's, it's so powerful. But when I looked up the definition of will, will, the definition was our will is our thinking and what motivates us. You know, Leah talked about this a little bit earlier in the introduction as well. For example, what motivated me as a compulsive overeater pre-program was my selfishness, my self-centeredness, and getting my fix, my food. And now my will is motivated now in recovery. My thinking is motivated by God, sobriety, and my service and carrying this message. And when we look at the definition of life, It says everything, all actions and reactions of life up until that particular point. So to me, this is incredibly important. What motivates me, my will, drives my thinking. And my thinking drives and directs my actions. So that's what my will is. It's my motivation that leads to my thinking that then leads to my action. So let me give you an example. If I'm motivated by self-will, if I'm motivated by my ego and getting what I want, what I want, and I want it now, if I'm motivated by self-will run riot, if I'm motivated by selfishness and self-centeredness, then I'm going to be thinking thoughts of restlessness, irritability, discontent, because life is, I'm going to want to control life, and life isn't going to go my way, and I'm going to start thinking about escaping. I'm going to be unhappy. I'm going to be discontent. And then at some point, my thinking is going to lead to a decision. And what is that decision of action going to be? Well, as a compulsive overeater, it's going to be to pick up the food. That's the mental obsession. That's where my mind goes. That's where my will goes. That's where my motivation leads. That's where my thinking starts. And there goes my action. Again, let's take it a different way. If my motivation and my will is to recover, to align my will with God's, like it talks about in step three, and that I'm motivated by my fear of this disease and my powerlessness of this disease, and I'm motivated by my need for a higher power and a need for sobriety, where is my thinking going to go? My thinking is going to go 
So what can I do? Can I pray? Do I need to call someone? Do I read in the big book? What are those decisions? What are those decisions that are going to lead right action, action steps? So if my motivation is powerlessness, if my will is aligning it with God and sobriety and wanting to recover, then I'm going to be thinking in a way that directs my actions towards recovery. I hope that makes sense to you, to you all. Again, what motivates my thinking drives and directs my actions and my will, turning my will in my life over is what's turning over my motives, my thinking, and my actions to this program and these 12 steps. So when I turn my will in my life over, it's the 12 steps. And what's beautiful about these 12 steps, I mean, how do we learn to change this thinking, to change from my selfish and self-centered thinking to this, this thinking of powerlessness, of being motivated to recover and turning that will over? Well, this is the action steps. This is why we go to step three, we make that decision, and we immediately begin to work. And that's what it talks about in this chapter, how it works. And we then move on to chapters, I mean, to steps four through nine, where we learn how to turn our will and our life over. We learn about our character defects. We become aware of our actions. We become aware of those character defects. We clean up the wreckage of, the step, of, of our past in steps eight and nine. And then through steps 10 through 11, it's learning how to keep our life, our will and our life turned over indefinitely. It's that maintenance. It talks about in the big book, our recovery is maintained by our spiritual, uh, our recovery is contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. So let me just wrap up by saying, if we go back to how it works and to this, I know I've said a lot, if we go back to page 60, uh, page 60, after reading the 12th step, it says, many of us exclaim, what an order, do not be discouraged. None among us have been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles, we're not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. And that's what this program is. We continually put our, I continually put the steps in front of me. I turn my will and my life over, and I trudge this road of recovery. And I continue to make progress, not perfection. And when I do so, I get the promises of this program. And it's, and there are, we all know the promises on step, you know, on page 82 and 83. But there's also some incredible promises from the third step on about, and relating to the third step on page 63. And it says here, when we take such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. This is based on the decision to turn our will and our life over, our will and our life over to care of a higher power. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves and our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life as we felt new power flow in, and we enjoyed peace of mind as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, of the hereafter, we were reborn. And this is what the power of this program has. Now, there is one thing I wanted to say also 
you know, in the beginning of this chapter, it says, rarely have we seen a person fail, and those who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. I just want to say I know a lot of people have have wondered about that paragraph when it says rarely instead of never. Well, I can tell you that um, people have said that Bill had decided that if anything he would change in the book, it would be that um, he would change rarely to never. But the reality is um, that we have some quotes. I I did some research. It's a fascinating study on the Internet if you go take a look. Um, in 1970, General Service, the ask if asked a question was addressed directly to Bill, and he said if, if we asked, the question was asked, if there's any change you would make in the big book, would it be to change the word rarely or never? And he said no, it would never be to change it. And the reasons were, and this is his quote, we did give this considerable thought at the time of writing. I think the main reason for the word used rarely was to avoid anything that would look like a claim of 100% result. Assuming, of course, that an alcoholic is willing enough, there can be a perfect score. But since willingness and sanity are such elusive and fluctuating values, we simply did not want to be too positive. The medical profession could jump right down our throats. I mean, that was the only reason why they put rarely there. Bill firmly believed that if we were willing enough and we were willing to turn our will and our lives over and admit powerlessness, that there was no one rarely seen a person fail, that we could, all rec- we could all recover. And this whole idea of constitutionally incapable, I used to use that as a cop-out, an active addiction saying, oh, I'm just made that way. I can never be honest. And pass me the Twinkies or a ho-ho. That was my excuse to keep eating. I used it as a cop-out. I was constitutionally incapable only because I was unwilling to surrender, admit powerlessness, and take action in these 12 steps. That's what constitutionally incapable was. I wasn't willing to put the food down. I was a liar and a thief. That's what I had become as a compulsive overeater, do anything to get my fix. But as soon as I became willing to take action and admit my powerlessness, I was no longer constitutionally incapable. I was certainly willing and able to work this program. And let me just wrap up by saying this. As I was writing this, and I wrote down Twinkie, and oh, reach me another Twinkie. I thought, oh my gosh, do they even make Twinkies anymore? I mean, I've been blessed to be in this program for over 25 years without a Twinkie. And I thought to myself, maybe I should put in there Kit Kat or something more recent because I don't know what the current, quote, binge foods are. And the more I thought about it, the more profound it became to me because the reality is, is that for 25 years, I have peace of mind. This these promises that I just read about peace of mind, the food no longer calls to me. I am free because I, one, choose to surrender, because I, two, choose to believe, and because I, three, choose to turn my will and my life over and choose to act on these 12 steps. My mind is free. My soul is free. My body is free. And that's what this program offers us. It offers us freedom of peace of mind and free from compulsive overeating. If I can do it, you can do it. This program is for all of us. There is a solution. It is in this big book. It is in these 12 steps. It is for all of us, and it starts here. It starts here. Please join me. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you for letting me share. Amy, thank you so very much for your unforgettable charisma and your powerful presentation this morning. Thank you for sharing your personal experience related to step one. 
and step two, and of course bringing to life step three for us this morning. Before we open the floor for question and answer period, uh, I will offer you uh, Amy's contact information. You can contact Amy via her cell phone, and she can be reached at 301-300-9325. Again, that's 301-300-9325, and that would be Eastern Time. And thank you again, Amy. Sure. Now let's open it up for some question and answers. You can press star 1 to unmute, and please identify yourself. Hi, this is Becca W. Becca, go ahead. Leah, thank you so much for your service. This is Maria. What a presentation. Um, Thank you so much for sharing today. My eyes were um, opened even wider about um, how coming this disease is. So I'm Becca W., a gratefully recovering compulsive overeater in Maryland. And my question is around constant contact with God. Um, I just quickly, I am on step four right now working with a big book sponsor. And um, what recently happened was I think I'm very vulnerable. And um, another obsession crept in and took over my life for about two weeks. And my contact with God was, I, I felt it flickering and then it was gone. And I um, talked to my sponsor about it, and she said, call some people on the line. She said, you know, I infuse. I went on a road trip, and I listened to probably four special editions and a couple of the morning calls, and um, and it came back. Like, thank you, God, it came back. Um, and it made me realize just how grateful um, I am to to be in the light of God. Um, but my question is, when you reached recovery, do you ever um, find it, your connection flickering um, or has it ever gone away once you've reached recovery? And if so, what have you, do, what have you done to strengthen it again? Thanks so much. Well, sure. Um, I loved what you just explained, your, your process and, and working with your sponsor when you realized that something was up. I mean, that's the process of having worked through these 12 steps is you start to become self-aware and you become to, to realize what, you know, when something is happening. When they say spiritual maintenance, it means that it's a constant thing. You can only coast downhill. We don't coast in this program. We are always working it. That's why they call steps 10 through 12 the maintenance step. Now, I realize you're in step four, but it is very clear that your sponsor is guiding you in taking the appropriate action steps um, to get yourself back on track. And that's what's the beauty of working these 12 steps with a recovered sponsor, to have that kind of guidance. And, and, and I can tell you, for me, I hear the honesty that I had in you, which is I feel myself on shaky ground here. What is it that I need to do? You know, the how of the program is willingness, honesty, open-mindedness. And to be honest, to say and be humble and say, you know, this is when I, when I feel that, I, you know, I get on the phone and I do what you did as I talk on the phone. I say, you know, this is what I'm feeling going on. It's not in relation to food by the grace of God in this program, but there are circumstances, there are life circumstances. This is why we turn our will and our lives over because life's going to happen. And what am I going to do and how am I going to react? Am I going to be sane and recovered in my thinking? 
or am I going to act like a crazy lunatic, like a dry drunk, and allow my spiritual maintenance to slip? So I have to take those appropriate actions to maintain my spiritual condition. And for me, those are certain things that I do. I get up in the morning, I pray, I have times of devotion for myself and reading in the big book. I listen to the Vision for You recorded religiously. I do things for my recovery. I mean, look, I have to eat every day, so to speak. I have an opportunity to trigger my disease at any point in time. But I also, so, so if I do that daily, well, then I also need to do what I need to do for my recovery every day. It's a daily discipline. And that's what spiritual maintenance is about. It's a daily discipline for me of what I do to maintain spiritually. And I can honestly tell you that, you know, it is a one-day-at-a-time program, but, you know, 25 years in, because of my maintenance, I'm pretty clear when I'm off the beam, you know, emotionally. And when I feel myself, um, you know, starting to get off track. I mean, I've got two kids. <laughs> There's nothing like motherhood to teach you some um, some humbling experiences on character defects that tend to rear their ugly heads again when you think they were done. So I can tell you that um, they, those things do crop up. But because of this program in steps 10, 11, and 12, I am able to get myself back in gear and where I need to be spiritually. And sometimes that's through prayer. Sometimes it's an immediate thought check. It says in the big book here when we are agitated or irritated, we pause. We ask for spiritual direction. That's, an, that's one of the things that I did, um, I do on a regular basis, to pause, to stop, to think. Um, I hope that's helpful. Thank you, Becca, for the question. I believe I heard a Maria. Is that correct? Yes, this is Maria H. from Ohio. Go right ahead with the question, please. Amy, thank you so much for your sharing your experience, strength, and hope. It was so enlightening. Can you share a little bit more, please, if you would, about um, your stepping away from being agnostic? I think I heard you say that you were agnostic when you entered the 12-step room. And then um, then, uh, please share a little bit more on that. Thank you. Sure, sure, sure. Because of my selfishness and self-centeredness and my self-will and wanting, you know, wanting what I wanted when I wanted, I, I treated what I considered God prior to program like a universal Santa Claus. Give me what I want, and if you don't give me what I want, then to heck with you. And that was my entire concept. I mean, this whole idea of God, I didn't really have, you know, much clue. And so when I came into the program and they mentioned God, to me, I was absolutely like, I knew there was a God that I was not interested, you know, as an agnostic. I didn't know or understand, you know, without knowledge. And for me, it was really something as simple as hurting so much that I was willing to try something different. And my sponsor, God bless her, she would say, she said to me, Amy, and this is what I shared earlier, was that, you know, I don't care if you think it's Jesus, Buddha, or the universal vibes of a tree. If, you're, if your way is working so well, why are you here? And I had to come to the limit of myself that I may not have believed in something out there or I didn't understand or know, but the way I was going was killing me and that my agnosticism was killing me. And I could look to you all and I thought, well, you all are believing in something greater than yourself and it's clearly working. And, you, and you're recovered and you have peace, 
then um, I don't think I have any other option because if I keep going the way I'm going, I'm going to die of this disease. So it was really, you know, as I said, John Barleycorn and Sarah Lee that propelled me into willingness to take action on this agnosticism. And at that point, and honestly, it was really, initially it was the power of the group. It was those who had gone before who were showing me the way via the 12 steps to recover. And as I became willing to take action, I mean, it says in the big book, all it takes is a little willingness, you know, to open the door to this idea. I was willing to put my agnosticism aside as if I knew nothing to begin again and learn anew. And my sponsor said something as simple as, why don't you fire that old God and hire a new one? And to me, that was a novel concept. You mean I can create my own concept of a higher power? And she's like, yes, as long as it's greater than you. And for the longest time, like I said, it was the program, it was the 12 steps, it was those who recovered, and eventually it began to evolve into a God. And now to the God, and that's continuing to evolve, you know, to the God of my understanding. Whom I choose to call God now? But that was a transform. that was a process. But it all started with that willingness to make that decision to believe and then turn it over and take action. I don't think we change at all without any action. And I had to be willing to put that agnosticism aside. Because of my fear of dying of this disease, I was willing to put it aside. When the pain of where you are gets bad enough, you move. And that was me. I hope that helps. Thank you, Maria H., for that question. Who's next? Tara. Tara, go ahead, please. Hi, um, everyone, and hi, Amy, and thank you for that amazing share because um, you were just telling my life story, except I was totally atheistic when I was um, went to college and became became totally immersed. Um, but my question, really. I mean, I love the answers that you gave to the other the other questioners. Those are my questions too. And um, but I have this other issue. I've been in program, um, and I don't know if it's my anorexia rearing its head or whatever. But um, I loved the boundaries, the, the way you described how to put boundaries around your food. Um, I had gone back into binging on my comfort, my old comfort foods after having gone to OA early on after, you know, in my 30s and was relieved of that. But then um, I did a huge geographic and lost the program and was trying to just live by the principles on my own for about 20 years. And I still didn't really ever return to the purging except for like one brief time. But anyway, um, I've now gotten too low in my weight and um, I am working with a sponsor. Um, And also my um, God consciousness has guided me towards vegan, being a vegan. And it makes things a little bit more challenging um, in abstinence, and uh, also that my weight went down when I got on the program um, of you know of the food, and I just wondered, do you use a nutritionist? Has your weight ever gone like way up or way down again, where you really had to 
change since you've been in recovery. When you had to really change your, get your food plan all changed around, or you know, sure. you just stick stick with it and plant, hope that it <laughs> balances out. Sure. Well, I mean, yes, I can I can address that. Uh, you know, specifically for me, I can share my experience. You know, as the as the bulimic and the anorexic side, one of the reasons why it was so very very important to put boundaries around my food plan is that I needed to know not only when the meal started and stopped. But I needed to know that uh, if I was going to surrender control, and, and for the anorexic, we know that control, well, for all of us, control is, is a huge issue. You know, am I really going to step out of the driver's seat here at step three and turn my will and my life over and trust that, for example, this food plan is going to be safe? And I needed to know that the food plan would be safe because I could be by volume. I could be triggered with my bulimia and my anorexic because I would feel out of control and then I would start to binge. So the boundaries around the food plan allowed me to start and stop my meals and to also know that these meals were safe. They were going to nourish my body. They were going to let me lose weight at a healthy pace and uh, to surrender the control over the numbers on the scale because that's part of the mental obsession for me were the numbers on the scale. And I can tell you that um, I have gained weight, had to gain weight. For example, I've gone through two pregnancies in abstinence and recovery, and I had to take direction. And that's what I'm talking about, humility. We, this is a program of ego reduction. We have got to let go and surrender what it is we see as control uh, and wanting a buffer with the numbers on the scale. You know, if your weight range is, is a, is a five-pound weight range, that's your weight range. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, we have to be willing to surrender and be accountable uh, with, our, with our abstinence as far as that goes. For example, when I was pregnant, I had to gain a certain amount of weight, which means I had, to add, I had to add certain amounts of food to my food plan. I needed to know what they were, where they were, and where they went. And I needed to know that uh, at that point I, I had uh, someone else weigh me to say that I was gaining the right amount of weight so I wouldn't obsess about the numbers on the scale that was appropriate and healthy for my baby and for myself. And then when I had my baby, I then lost the weight with, with, again, the help of a nutritionist and my sponsor to slowly take out foods that were no longer necessary for me so that I could get back to my maintenance weight. Um, I also had a couple of years ago, I had a back surgery, and I was uh, laid flat out prior to that for almost two months, about six or seven weeks. And when you're in tremendous pain like that, um, you know, your body is like a furnace. It burns up, and I, I dropped weight. And I had to put uh, I had to put weight back on then as well, and it was the same issue of just surrendering the numbers on the scale, asking my nutritionist what I needed to add, and going with it. No discussion, no debate. Because as soon as I started to decide for myself, then I'd open the door for the mental obsession and starting to think I control by saying, well, if my weight range is 130 to 135, then maybe I'd be safer. That's the kind of thinking that leads to my mental obsession. At 2125, what's wrong with 125? Or I can start eating or playing around with my food plan at the lower ranges, the lower fat foods, the higher fat foods. I mean, it starts the wheels of turning. And, you know, when we're working steps 10 and 12, those thoughts become very clear very quickly. Whoa, 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 we're not going there. And that's why we work work these 12 steps. That's why we are recovered, but we are not cured. And I was very vigilant in those times of having to gain and lose weight that I was following to the letter that was being told to me. And I did not make those decisions on my own. I was not willing to open the door to that mental obsession. 
no way, no how. I don't want to die of this disease. I've been given too much. I hope that helps. Thank you, Tara, for the question. Anyone else? Hi, this is Randy. Hi, Randy. Go ahead. Hi, uh, Amy. Thank you for your service and uh, Leah as well. So um, I've been in the uh, in the Big Book Step Study uh, for, for a few years. I get away from the Big Book Study. I've been in OA, traditional OA now, for about eight years. And I had about you know, pretty eight years of solid, squeaky clean abstinence. And over the last couple of years, um, it's kind of been a struggle in and out. And I went into the HOW program um, and just kind of doing this, um, you know, 30 days here, uh, five days here, five days there. And I'm just kind of questioning on what your thought would be. I'm not sure it's 100% related to the topic, but from some of the stuff we were sharing would really hit home in a question that somebody else had. I also have another addiction that I'm, you know, trying to surrender to too. Um, am I in your, uh, just looking for what your thoughts are in terms of, because um, I've been to, I've done a couple of fourths and fifths. Uh, I started, I did one thorough, kind of one half one, and then my sponsor kind of went back out. So right now I'm like in between sponsors. So I'm really kind of looking at whether I should go right back to starting from scratch and surrendering, because if I'm turning to the food versus turning to God, then my issue for me, I believe, is surrender. But um, I also feel that the writing the fourth and the fifth, redoing that, um, is also important. So I'm kind of getting, just want to get your thoughts on where, where you thought maybe that a good direction kind of for me to go. Should I just kind of start from scratch and, and uh, re-surrender, and, or, or, or what's your thought? <laughs> kind of all over the place, but that's kind of my general question. Should I start from the beginning? Should I get a, you know, start from, you know, getting a, uh, doing a fourth and fifth again? Um, well, again, I can speak from my own experience and what I understand yes. the direction, the directions in the big book to be. And, you know, having struggled, you know, it sounds like a little bit like, you know, you did, we're similar in that, that first four and a half years in OA, uh, and also being multi-addicted. Uh, I, I, think, I think going back to the basics is very important, but not the basics of how it works. I mean, the basics of the beginning again, starting fresh, that, that is what I would be because to me it comes back to this willingness to surrender and to turn my will over. I mean, it seems it's pretty clear that we know what we know. We know we're powerless. I knew I was powerless. I was willing to admit powerlessness. I was even willing to work this program, but ultimately I was unwilling to turn my will and my life over to a higher power. I was still working off of knowledge, and that's why I said I had a belly full of food and a head full of knowledge because ultimately I was unwilling with complete abandon. That's why I, I talked about that word. I looked at definition. We don't go back. It means complete abandon, that we don't go back to picking up our will and our motivations that lead us back to the food. I mean, I'll speak here just about the food, which is I had to go back to the beginnings to admit who I was and how powerlessness I truly was. I think for those of us that slide around, or for me, was this issue of surrendering powerlessness and then asking for help. I, I, was, I was not capable to do it. And what, what actually did it for me was the pain of continuing to slip and relapse. You know, when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. I got to a point finally where I was hurting so bad where I was. You know, I was in a corner. I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't imagine life with eating, and I couldn't imagine life without eating. I mean, it became 
it had to become for me that black and white. It had to be what they call the gift of desperation. I'm not saying you're not there. I'm just saying for me, I mean, I had one person say to me, and it was a blessing. She said to me, you need to go out there and do some more research and development because you clearly don't think that you're a compulsive overeater. And I said, I do too. I do too. And she was like, "Uh, I don't think so because if you really knew that you were powerless, you would be asking for help outside of yourself. You clearly are vacillating on it. And I was so offended by it. But the reality was I wasn't in enough pain. I wasn't ready to turn it over, and I wasn't willing to surrender. And the scary part of that is I can tell you honestly, I thought I was at the time, but it took what it took to get me there, and it took a few more years of pain and suffering and torture of compulsive overeating to finally admit my powerlessness in OA that I finally was going, went back. I did exactly what you said. I went back and I started all over again as if I knew nothing. Absolutely humble and ready. And I quote a friend of mine that said, I don't care at this point if she told me to get in pajamas, pigtails, and climb backwards to China. I would do it. I would do it. I would to go to length. That was the motivation that I needed at that point. Prior to that, I didn't have it. I hope that helps. Thank you, Brandy, for the question. Who's next? This is Sally C. in Oregon. I have a question. Yes, go ahead, Sally. Thank you so much, Amy, for your service this morning, for sharing so much about your life with us this morning. I wonder if you would um, talk a little bit about your morning routine. I'm interested in how people start their days because, Right now, my start to the day is not as structured as I would like it to be. Um, I especially wake up Saturday morning, and I'm not quite sure what to do. Um, So I would really appreciate it if you would expand a little bit on what you do in the morning to start your day to to connect with your higher power and to um, get yourself set to stay there throughout the day. Thank you. Sure. Sure, no, I'd love to. Uh, uh, I mean, they say repetition is the father of learning. And for me, I was a very undisciplined person prior to program, to say the least. And it was very important for me to uh, create a discipline or a routine to maintain my recovery, to maintain my spiritual condition. And those are very specific things that I do. I really, I really am a person of action, you know. And I believe strongly in routine, consistency, discipline, structure, for me as a compulsive overeater, are extremely important. It doesn't mean that life doesn't happen. But if I have a framework upon which to work, a foundation, it becomes my anchor when life is chaotic. So here is what I do. In the morning, I get up, I get on my knees, I do the third step prayer. I ask for freedom from bondage of self because I know the issue is me. (laughs) The problem is me, and it's always about me. And I ask for freedom from bondage. I ask for God to give me victory over that so I can bear witness to others. And to me, that's carrying the message and sharing the message of recovery. Um, and so I, I do that prayer in the morning. Um, I also have uh, I have Voices of Recovery. I have the big book. I do some reading and writing. Right now, I am going um, I am going through some of uh, the older editions uh, stories from the big book. You know, from the first and second and third editions. 
currently on the fourth edition of the big book published. I'm going to stories paragraph by paragraph and writing about them. I'm doing something for my recovery every single day for myself spiritually. Um, I've also planned out what I'm eating for the day. I usually do that the night before, but I think about it and review it in the morning. Um, it, you know, this, it all takes about 25 minutes. I usually do, um, I'll listen to maybe Vision for You recorded at lunch. Uh, at some point during the day, I'm on the phone and I'm speaking to people in recovery, my recovery network. I think a recovery network, the we part of the program is extremely important that I'm, I usually make a couple of phone calls a day, usually one to a newcomer, and then the other two or three to people who are recovered in my network so they know what's going on with me so that when I do have an issue, I get on the phone with them. I don't need to do a 20-minute dissertation. They know what's up. They know my relapse warning signs. I know theirs. You know, we know each other, and we are accountable to each other, and it's a very, very important network and the best friends in the world to me. Um, they are my true friends with me on this road uh, to recovery. I also have a time during the day, usually in the morning, but, you know, circumstances are such I have one in the middle of the day as well. I take sponsee calls. I am a sponsor, and I believe really strongly in that idea of carrying the message. So I sponsor people, and I speak to the phone at a designated time, speak on the phone with them at a designated time. So, and at night, I do a 10-step and a gratitude list. I'm, I'm very, I think 10 steps are absolutely integral to my recovery to review my day, to continue that habit of self-awareness and turning it over to God and asking for freedom from those character defects and shortcomings. So I review my day at the end of the day and I do a gratitude list. It doesn't take me very long, but there's always something to be grateful for, always, always. And so I write what I'm grateful down. And, and always first on the list is I'm grateful for God, abstinence, and sobriety. And then I go on, I look through my day, and I review my day. I need to work on that, need to work on this, and then do for this, that, and the other. And there's always plenty of praises there. And that's my day. Morning on my knees, and I end the day on my knees with a step and a gratitude list. I hope that helps. Thank you, Sally, for the question. And, of course, thank you, Amy, for your presentation this morning. We appreciate your time and energy. I'll repeat Amy's phone number. Thank you. I'll repeat Amy's phone number again. That is 301-300-9325. And I'll close the meeting now with the way that we always close our meetings here on A Vision for You, and that's reading from page 164 from the chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.